Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for Episode 5 on January 22nd, 2010. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore news and information, government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes under Air Medical Today. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guest is Mr. Jonathan Godfrey, a flight nurse, air medical crash survivor, and chair of the Vision Zero Initiative for the Association of Air Medical Services. I am also going to check in with the University of Michigan Survival Flight Program on their transport of two patients injured in the Haitian earthquake in the new first response section of the podcast. Before I introduce my guest, I want to go over some feedback from Episode 4 and cover some recent air medical transport news. I did hear some feedback from episode four of the podcast regarding the length of the show. As I said in the podcast last week, it was a long one, and the reason was the Haitian earthquake and the comprehensive interview that I did with Airvac Life Team. I'm going to try to keep each episode to one to one and a half hours, but unlike regular media, the role of Air Medical today is to provide listeners an in-depth knowledge of our industry and community and not just sensational sound bites. As I mentioned in the last episode, I have started a blog about the Eero Podcast Network that you can find at blog.eero.com. I am blogging about the different podcasts that I am doing and also providing more detail on the people I am interviewing, so please do stop by. Remember, I do want to hear from you, so call the Air Medical Today phone line or send an audio file to the email address to provide feedback, ask questions, or if you have suggestions for future guests. I will be putting selected voice messages on the podcast itself, so it's a great way to have your voice heard on the show. Also, as mentioned in Episode 3, I'm trying to locate all Air Medical and Critical Care Transport fan pages on Facebook. If your program or service is not shown in the Favorites Pages tab in the left-hand column on the Air Medical Today Facebook page, then please send your page link to me at webmaster at airmedtoday.com, and I will make sure that your program is linked. To follow up on news... From Haiti, the United States struck an agreement with the Cuban government to send medical evacuation flights with victims from the Haiti earthquake through restricted Cuban airspace late last week. An arrangement already exists between the United States and Cuba permitting violations of airspace for emergency medical flights, 
This new agreement expands the authority to a full-time basis during the evacuation. The reduction of flight time to Miami is cut by 90 minutes. At the request of the Haitian government, the Federal Aviation Administration dispatched a portable temporary control tower to Haiti on Tuesday to help assist with the airlift operations at Port-au-Prince International Airport. The portable tower is 44 feet long, 13 feet high, and 8 feet wide, and weighs about 25,000 pounds. It comes with two diesel-powered generators and supporting fuel tanks, plus tools and other support equipment for installation and maintenance. The FAA uses this tower and others like it to support airports when existing towers are out of service like a disaster such as controllers have been providing terminal air traffic control service at a folding table using military radios to handle about 160 flights a day. The airport's control tower was rendered unusable by the earthquake. That story uh, is from AMT Online. Helicopter Association International has been working with the Department of Homeland Security's Critical Incident Management Group, which is coordinating with U.S. State Department recovery efforts in Haiti. CIMG asked HAI to provide a list of available aircraft, specialized capabilities, and contact information. HAI is directing operators to its first responder program at rotor.com slash fr to supply asset and contact information or to email Haiti at rotor.com with details such as external load, number of passengers, or EMS fire suppression capabilities. In addition, responding to a request from the Community Coalition for Haiti in Fairfax, Virginia, the Association of Air Medical Services is also asking members to supply fixed-wing flights to and from Port-au-Prince, as well as medical helicopters or small fixed-wing aircraft for ferry flights within the country. That source was the New York Times and HAI. Last week, the University of Michigan Health System announced that its survival flight jet was on standby should it be needed for the rescue efforts in Haiti. This past Wednesday, they were called for a flight where the crew of three flew out of Willow Run Airport Tuesday evening and headed to Fort Lauderdale, Florida to get in position. By midday Wednesday, the group was making its final approach towards Port-au-Prince. The survival flight crew was on the airport compound for a few hours before they began their trip back. Taking into account the weight of everything aboard, the pilots determined it was safe to take a second patient on the flight. On the way back, after switching for fresh pilots in Florida, the group finally finished the trip about 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time Wednesday evening at Willow Run Airport. A survival flight helicopter and Huron Valley Ambulance were waiting to take the patients back to the hospital. The health system and crew declined to discuss details of the injuries or patients citing privacy laws. Uh, In an email to employees on Thursday, the university said that the two patients have injuries that require complex care that's available at only a few medical centers in the country. I speak with flight nurse Wilson Bowers and flight physician Jeff Potoff from Survival Flight under the first response section of the podcast. And the source 
from that was the University of Michigan Healthcare System News, AnnArbor.com, and Michigan Radio. Angels of Flight, a Petersboro, Ontario, Canada-based healthcare company, is serving as a highly specialized travel agency for medical professionals trying to get to Haiti to help with relief effort. A team of 10 medical professionals went to Haiti on Monday to take medical supplies and equipment, according to Dr. Rocco Lombardi, the company's medical director. It took two days to organize the transportation for the group. Angels of Flight is currently working with two other groups that are trying to get to Haiti. The company works predominantly with individuals in small Canadian groups, but it has also been involved with American groups that are going to Haiti. The company hasn't been charging for its services to get medical teams to Haiti, and Angels of Flight staff have donated their time to facilitate the transportation for the groups. The charitable company operates out of Petersboro and Oshawa, Ontario, and Yuma, Arizona. Source for that was the Petersboro Examiner. I am trying to find out Uh, all the air medical providers from around the world who have responded to Haiti. And according to the Association of Air Medical Services, they know of Aeral Ambulancia from the Dominican Republic and Survival Flight. Additionally, AeroVac Life Team sent their Director of Safety, Dave Hardin, to Haiti to assist Aeral Ambulancia's operations. On to healthcare reform... Scott Brown's victory in Massachusetts for this Senate uh, seat held by uh, the late Edward Kennedy has put the president's uh, health plan on life support. The seat gives the party 41 votes in the Senate, enough to stall the legislation. It forces Democrats to devise contingency plans to salvage a bill after Senate leaders spent months assembling the 60-vote coalition needed for passage in the chamber. Among the Democrats' options are press the House to pass the Senate bill without changes to avoid a second Senate vote, offer a scaled-back measure that would need a simple majority of 51 votes in the Senate, or reach out to Republicans like Senators Olympia Snow of Maine and George Voinovich of Ohio. These moves all present policy and political challenges and dangers, lawmakers and analysts say. Investors agreed. Shares of health insurers and pharmaceutical companies rose after Brown's election on speculation Republicans may block an overhaul. Brown vows to vote against the legislation, and with his victory, it clouds the bill's prospects because it will spark concern among Democratic lawmakers about the upcoming November midterm elections. President Obama said that his health care overhaul has run into a bit of a buzzsaw and acknowledged the process is looking ugly. He says he'll keep working to finish sweeping legislation and that he was not going to walk away just because it's hard in comments he made in a town hall meeting in Ohio this week. Meanwhile, House Democrats are lined up behind a proposal that would allow an incremental approach to overhauling the health care system by using a series of bills instead of one big reform bill. Under the plan put forward by Representative Bill Pasquale, a Democrat from New Jersey, which was presented to Democrats during a closed-door meeting, three or four bills would be introduced in quick succession. 
By design, the legislation would involve more popular and less controversial components of the broader health care reform packages that are now stalled in Congress. Pasquale hinted that the measures would prove more amenable to some Republicans because they would strip provisions such as the public option, individual insurance mandates, and the newly created entitlement programs, which made Republicans and some Democrats nervous. Source for that was Modern Healthcare, Business Week, and MSNBC. A new Air Medical Transport Working Group met this week to formulate a strategy to identify and mitigate the pressures that may be placed on air medical crew members to accept or continue a flight under conditions of elevated risk. The project is part of the No Pressure Initiative sponsored by the National EMS Pilots Association. The project is funded in part by the $10,000 Vision Zero Award sponsored by American Eurocopter that was awarded to the organization at the annual Air Medical Transport Conference in San Jose, California last October. The group includes representatives from the Association of Air Medical Services, the Air Medical Operators Association, the Association of Critical Care Transport, Air and Surface Transport Nurses Association, International Association of Flight Paramedics, National Association of Air Medical Communication Specialists, and the Air Medical Physicians Association. Other interested parties that were present included a consultant from the FAA and Jay Heffernan, Director of Safety for the Helicopter Association International. Dr. Mark Rosekind, an internationally recognized expert on sleep and fatigue issues affecting workers who provide 24-7 services, attended the gathering and contributed an unbiased perspective to the discussions. The group was facilitated by Dr. Frank Thomas and utilized a highly structured formal process to identify the universe of sources of adverse pressures on air medical flight crews. The results of that process will serve as the foundation to develop a survey to be presented to the nationwide air medical transport community. The survey will gather data to clearly identify and quantify the factors that are most influential on air crews and are most likely to result in the kind of flawed decision-making that could lead to preventable aircraft accidents. The results of the survey will be made available to the air medical transport industry stakeholders nationwide. Following these steps, the next phase of the project will use the data to guide the development and deployment of mitigations aimed at eliminating or counteracting the pressures that are identified. Periodic updates on the progress of the project will be posted on the NEMSPA website at nemspa.org. Source of that was HAI. Reports of airplanes hitting birds and other wildlife surged last year, according to the Associated Press analysis of new government data. The government's tally for all bird strikes last year could reach or even exceed 10,000 for the first time, which would represent about 27 strikes each day. There were at least 57 cases in the first seven months of 2009 that caused serious damage and three in which planes and a corporate helicopter were destroyed by birds. At least eight people died and six were hurt. Why the increase? Uh, Airports and airlines have become more diligent about reporting, said Mike Biger, 
National Coordinator for the Airport Wildlife Hazards Program at the Agricultural Department. Experts also blame increasing populations of large birds like Canada geese that can knock out engines on passenger jets. Reports of bird strike through July have doubled in at least 17 states since 2005, including many along the Mississippi and central migratory flyways running across the central United States. The 17 states are Arkansas, Colorado, Delaware, Iowa, Kansas, Maine, Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, South Dakota, Texas, Vermont, and Wisconsin. The surge in reports for 2009, expected to be as much as 40% higher once the final accounting is in, comes in spite of government concerns that disclosing details about such strikes would discourage reports by airports and airlines out of worries about lost business. The previous high was 7,507 strikes in 2007. And that source is in Forum. HAI announced this week that Terry Palmer, manager of rotorcraft programs at Flight Safety International in Dallas, Texas, was the recipient of the 2010 Augusta Westland Safety Award. Palmer has worked with many committees and organizations, including the Helicopter Safety Advisory Conference, Tour Operators Program of Safety, Association of Air Medical Services, and the Air Medical Operators Association. She is a member of the HAI Safety Committee and currently serves as the Aviation Director on the Board of the Commission on Accreditation of Medical Transport Services. For the last two years, she has served on the International Helicopter Safety Team and the Joint Helicopter Safety Implementation Team. Congratulations, Terry. And that source is HAI. Houston Air traffic controllers have begun using Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast, or ADS-B, technology to separate and manage aircraft flying over the Gulf of Mexico as a nationwide rollout of the technology is expected in the U.S. by 2013. Before ADS-B, controllers had to rely on the aircraft's estimated or reported position in the Gulf of Mexico, which does not have radar coverage. Controllers separated commercial aircraft at high altitudes by as much as 120 nautical miles. Due to the large number of helicopter operations in the region, the FAA installed ground stations on oil platforms and the surrounding shoreline as part of an agreement with Helicopter Association International, oil and natural gas companies, and helicopter operators. Prior to the ADS-B rollout, operations were severely restrained for the 5,000 to 9,000 daily helicopter operations in the Gulf of Mexico. Individual helicopters were isolated within a 20-mile by 20-mile box to remain safely separated. The Gulf of Mexico is the largest area to go live with ADS-B following a deployment in Louisville, Kentucky in 2009. Controllers in Philadelphia will begin using the technology next month, and in addition, the system will be operational in Juneau, Alaska in April. The FAA in April expects to issue its final rule to mandate that airlines are outfitted with ADS-B avionics by 2020. That source is Flight Global. 
Nova Scotia's only helicopter ambulance is out of commission for six weeks. The Emergency Health Service Life Flight Helicopter is in Ontario for maintenance following a safety recall. The manufacturer, Sikorsky, is replacing a section of the tail rotor after problems were found with similar models. There was no replacement helicopter available, so an airplane is doing the job. The fixed-wing aircraft is usually used uh, as a backup during bad weather. But the airplane can only land on runways and not on heliports like the one at the QE2 Health Sciences Center in Halifax. And that source is the CBC News. Carolina's Medical Center's MedCenter Air program selected the EMS SkyConnect fleet SATCOM system to provide voice and tracking for each of its aircraft and ambulances. The program, based in Charlotte, North Carolina, operates air ambulances that need coverage within the Carolinas as well as worldwide for fixed-wing aircraft that travel internationally. MedCenter Air's fleet include three EC-135 helicopters and two Beechcraft King Air and two Cessna Citation fixed-wing aircraft. The EMS SkyConnect fleet system provides voice telephone service, two-way text messaging, and an automated tracking system. The aircraft position, flight plans, and text messaging will be displayed on the MedCenter Air dispatcher's computers providing real-time information about aircraft status, intended routes, and estimated arrival times. EMS SkyConnect, a division of EMS Technologies, offers a broad range of satellite-based tracking and voice systems in both commercial and government markets. EMS SkyConnect has more than 4,500 satellite communication systems flying worldwide. The source for that was Syscon Media. Two lost hunters made it home safely last week thanks to night vision technology and the efforts of a PHI medical crew, the Texas Forest Service, and the Angelina County Sheriff's Office. According to Texas Game Warden James Barge, the hunters' quick-thinking helped officials rescue them after they became lost in the forest near Zavella, Texas, last Tuesday night. One of the hunters managed to find enough cell phone reception to call 911, report their parked car location, and that they had built a signal fire. The thick vegetation made it difficult for searchers to locate the men on foot, so officials eventually called in PHI to search the area by air using night vision goggles. Using the NVGs, the PHI medical crew found the hunters immediately and then directed ground searchers to the lost hunters. That source was the Lufkin Daily News. CareFlight, the nonprofit medical transport company governed by North Texas Health Systems, is in the process of rolling out 24 new ground ambulances. The approximately $3.75 million undertaking came through a continuous capital campaign fundraising and commercial financing, according to Jim Schwartz, CareFlight president and CEO. Of the new ambulances, 10 are to replace other vehicles in the fleet. And that source was the Fort Worth Business Press. Hospital officials in St. Mary's Hospital in Streeter, Illinois, announced this week that Saints Flight, an air medical helicopter transport service, will be permanently stationed at St. Mary's Hospital. St. Mary's is partnering with St. John's Medical Center in Springfield, its sister hospital in the Hospital Sisters Health Systems Network, 
and Arch Air Medical Services, which is owned by Air Methods Corporation. Four pilots, four paramedics, and five registered nurses employed by Air Methods will work in rotation on the Saints Flight American Eurocopter BK-117 helicopter. The helicopter crew will be housed at St. Mary's Hospital 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That source was My Web Times. The U.S. Federal Aviation Administration has alerted the general aviation community that a large number of Honeywell Bendex King navigation systems are unfit for arrival, departure, or approach operations due to an error made by data provider Jepson. According to an urgent navigational database safety bulletin issued by Honeywell on January 11th, databases for units including the Bendex King KLN 900 for business aircraft are unusable if loaded with the January 14th database and must be updated with correct version before resuming the operations. Jepson said this was due to an oversight on its part. The database did not include a dynamic magnetic variation adjustment for terminal and en route waypoints, an error that would cause the system to calculate erroneous courses and bearings. Jepson said it discovered the error on December 29th as a result of post-processing verification steps at about the same time some of its customers found the error. The FAA considered issuing an airworthiness directive for the error, but ultimately decided to issue the safety bulletin instead. And that source was Flight Global. Finally, from England, and in a follow-up from a story reported on an earlier podcast, charity watchdogs have told London Air Ambulance to tighten up procedures but cleared the service of any wrongdoing following allegations by former Kent Air Ambulance boss, David Philpott. Mr. Philpott from Ashford was fired just three months into his job as chief executive of the Air Ambulance. During his brief time with the Virgin Group sponsored service, he raised a number of concerns about alleged conflicts of interest on its board of trustees and an alleged misappropriations of charity funds and resources. Mr. Philpott later appealed against the decision to fire him. Following the wide spread publicity about Mr. Philpott's abrupt dismissal and allegations the Charity Commission was asked to investigate. And that source was Kent Business. Remember, this and other news and information can be located by following Air Medical Today on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. The Twitter feed is more comprehensive than the Facebook postings, but the Twitter feed can also be seen on the Facebook page under the RSS blog tab. It is delayed, however, due to network issues on Facebook. A new section to the podcast is called First Response, where I will be providing either live reports or speaking to individuals involved in breaking news. I was able to contact the medical crew of Survival Flight today from their base in Ann Arbor, Michigan. They are flight nurse Wilson Bowers and flight physician and chief emergency medicine resident Jeff Potoff. Guys, thanks so much for being on the podcast. And I, I know you both uh, were just got back from Haiti, I believe, on Wednesday. And I wanted to, uh, if you could tell our audience uh, how... Did you get the request? Uh, I know from reading the University of Michigan uh, notices that you had been on standby and were ready, but how did you actually get the request? 
I, I believe the uh, request, uh, as a result of us being a preferred provider with FEMA and through the mm-hmm. uh, AAMS, the Association of Air Medical Services, uh, we were contacted through that by a hospital and a service called Angel Missions out of Haiti through their regional director in Chicago uh, for us to come down and pick up a selected patient. And it was facilitated through the administration of the of the university. So, and that was primarily, so through their triage, uh, they knew that the University of Michigan could take on highly specialized care. I know you can't talk about the patient, but... Um, you think that's how they went right, through that? Right. The, the, the goal of, of the university was to to take patients that would specifically benefit from the um, the specialty care available here that uh, would not be available at uh, other institutions either uh, in country or 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 near the border. I see. When uh, I, I know uh, you had wrote a lot about you know how to prepare. Could you talk about that? Did you know? anything about the patient so that you knew what to take at the time of the transport? When we initially departed, we were under the information of one particular patient, but that changed, and it changed, and it changed. I think we had a total of four different patients we were looking at at different parts of the journey. Uh, That being said, we had prepared for any eventuality when we got there in terms of the equipment we took the supplies. I see. Before, before leaving Ann Arbor, uh, Wilson and I uh, sat down and uh, reassessed what we carry in our packs uh, on a routine basis and what additional supplies we might need for this specific mission. Uh, added things such as uh, antibiotics to treat open fractures, uh, central line kits for patients that would not have access via either uh, classical peripheral IVs or, or uh, interosseous lines. Uh, increased the amount of uh, crystalloid we were going to take given the long uh, transport time. So we did make some changes based on the unique nature of this mission. I see. And tell us, you you left then on Tuesday. Uh, Tell us about how you got to Haiti. What were the steps? I know you landed in Fort Lauderdale. We uh, left at about 7 o'clock from Ypsilanti uh, Tuesday night, landed in Fort Lauderdale around, I believe it was 9.30, uh, got situated down there, spent the night there. I think we had about three hours worth of sleep. Got up 3 o'clock in the morning, departed at 5 a.m. for uh, 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 Puerto Rico, where we refueled. Mm. Left Puerto Rico around 9 in the morning and flew into uh, Port-au-Prince, where we had to circle for almost a half an hour due to the air traffic. And then uh, on our third attempt to land, we were able to uh, clear through the traffic and land at the airport an hour and a half after we uh, departed Puerto Rico. And I know Cuba opened their airspace. Did you fly over Cuba? No, we we came close, uh, but mostly to the north side of the uh, island. I see. Okay. Well, describe the the scene on the ground there. I think... uh... I think uh, the images you see on television uh, do not do justice to the devastation that mm. you see when actually circling uh, the city. Uh, you would see neighborhoods with uh, a few buildings standing, and then uh, the next neighborhood would be complete rubble. Um, as you got closer, you could see people standing in the streets, um, and it was just uh, it was really remarkable uh, how much destruction uh, there is in Port-au-Prince at this time. Yeah, the uh, the airport was uh, extremely busy. There was all types of aircraft coming and going, helicopters coming and going, and uh, uh, mountain, mountainous piles of supplies and relief 
from other countries, and uh, it was all organized chaos in that it appeared everybody was on a mission. Were there other air medical providers there? Did you see others besides the military? I didn't see any any uh, anyone in particular that I recognized. Uh, I'm I'm sure there were other folks there, but where we were located and staged, um, you know, we we didn't see any any familiar faces, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were helicopters stationed in the infield that looked like private helicopters, but none of them had uh, were, were identified as being affiliated with any uh, certain like air medical provider group that that I recognized. Okay, and then uh, tell the audience that you know you're. Now, the handoff with the patient, I know you can't go into the details of that, but did you, how was this different maybe than a transport that you would do in in, uh, southeast Michigan? I think uh, on most transports we do, we we have, you know, an identified patient, uh, a lot of data behind that patient and kind of a general plan on on what we will end up doing uh, on scene to stabilize the patient and get him back to the tertiary care facility. I think some of the differences that we had in Haiti uh, where uh, even though we had an idea of who we were going to get, we went in with the assumption that we may get something completely different uh, given the, the the nature of how it had come together. Uh, and the uh, the second option was given given the widespread destruction and the, the great medical need down there, uh, we uh, determined that if it were possible, we would attempt to bring back more than just uh, the one patient that we were assigned. If if the initial patient was medically stable and we felt that we would not stretch our resources or capacity by uh, adding another one, either either with uh, the division of medical care or with uh, the weight and balance of the aircraft. Mm-hmm. And you did decide to t- uh, take two patients from the news articles, though. So you, yeah, you, that is you correct. We did take two patients. Yeah. But, um, I, I guess if you could go, did you did they give you the type of information I know uh, that you needed for the patient? Uh, in flight, I mean, what was the scene with the medic- other medical providers down there? The uh, the, the patients arrived in, at, the, at the aircraft, and uh, the information that was given was basic information about the nature of their injuries. When we look at these patients, we want more information regarding the laboratories, the X-rays, the the things that make our job a little bit easier. None of that was available. When you ask for a glucose level, they would say, well, we don't have that. We, we don't have labs available. Mm-hmm. Uh, the x-rays, they didn't have copies that you could look at. So um, you utilize basic assessment skills that you learned a long time ago and use those skills to determine where the patient was and how well they were doing. Yeah, uh, the the situation in Haiti made you uh, acutely aware of uh, how good we have it here in the U.S. with uh, easy availability of laboratory testing, diagnostic testing. Uh, you get a really idea, a, g- a good idea of what what you're getting uh, before you show up uh, in Haiti. Just like Wilson said, uh, you rely heavily on physical exam findings uh, more so than any ancillary testing because they just don't have the capability to provide that for you. Right. So the trip back then, uh, did you go back through Florida? Actually, uh, we left uh, Port-au-Prince, and due to the fact that we had spent so much time in the air, we were a little bit short on fuel. Mm-hmm. We had to uh, make a fuel stop in Nassau prior to going to Fort Lauderdale. Once that was completed in Fort Lauderdale, we changed out the pilots and uh, headed back to uh, Ann Arbor. I see. Yeah, they, there's no fuel available out on the ground there or, or limited, right? They they had fuel trucks that were there, and I don't know 
how the process worked, whether the, the cost was high or I heard somebody say the fuel quality was a question. Uh, we did not take on fuel down there, and we did not plan on doing that. Yeah, that's I heard that, uh, that they were asking people to have enough fuel to, to get in and out. Um, just on a personal level, how, how has this impacted the two of you? It's been a it's been an eye-opening experience for me when it was over and done with. Besides being emotionally and physically exhausted, mm. I woke up the next morning and thought, "What did I just take part in?" Yeah. You know, and it's been it's been a real uh, it's been an honor to be able to help out. Yeah, yeah I would agree. I mean, emotionally, it's it's quite draining to see that level of destruction. To uh, understand that there's thousands and thousands who will die from this, and. Uh, uh, you feel uh, wonderful that you were able to uh, take at least two of these patients back for tertiary medical care, uh, but at the same time, um, you yearn to to hope that you could do more. Yeah, were were the two of you just happened to be on duty when you got the call, or was this a special flight that was put together? We had uh, we had some advance notice, and I personally was off the two days that we did this on Tuesday and Wednesday. I volunteered as a result of that, and uh, Jeff, you can tell about your situation. Uh, basically, this is uh, an elective month for me, and uh, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm on a survival flight elective, so I became the default flight physician for this mission. Yeah, well, great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time, and uh, thank you for what you've done, the impact that uh, you've had for these two patients. It's uh, just, it is, it's just, it is mind-boggling, the, the the destruction down there, and then also, you know, you read the stories. I watch every day the news that you know they're pulling people out, but then the infection rate is so high because you know it's been so many days since the injury um, that it's that's very difficult. So, but uh, thank you both, and uh, I appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Today I am interviewing Mr. Jonathan Godfrey, a flight nurse, air medical crash survivor, and chair of the Vision Zero Initiative for the Association of Air Medical Services. Jonathan lives in Chesapeake Beach, Maryland, next to the Chesapeake Bay, but is originally from San Antonio, Texas. He took a nursing travel assignment in the Washington, D.C. area in 1996 and never expected to stay, but found that he liked Four Seasons and there were great job opportunities to boot. He still describes himself as a South Texas man at heart, however. Jonathan is the sole survivor of a January 10, 2005 Life Evac 2 crash into the Potomac River in Washington, D.C. after dropping off a patient at the Washington Hospital Center. Pilot Joseph Schaefer and flight paramedic Nicole Kyler were killed in the crash. Underwater, Jonathan made it to the surface, swam to the tail of the aircraft, which was floating in the water, and then held on in the freezing cold until he was rescued by Alexandria Fire and Rescue via boat, and then flown to the Washington Hospital Center by the Maryland State Police Trooper 2 medevac helicopter. Over the next few days and weeks, he learned of all his injuries, which included a compound fracture of his right humerus, a sternum fracture, two right rib fractures, pulmonary contusion, substernal hematoma, seven thoracic fractures, right shoulder dislocation with the Hillzax lesion, sprained ankles, and severely bruised hips. 
From that terrible ordeal, Jonathan has spoken around the country on air medical safety as the chair of the Association of Air Medical Services Vision Zero Initiative. He is also involved in the new Survivors Network for Air and Surface Medical Transport with fellow air medical survivors Megan Hamilton, Teresa Pearson, and Krista Hagen. When not speaking and lecturing, he works as a flight nurse at one of the busiest pediatric neonatal transport systems in the country. Jonathan has three children, two girls and a boy, ranging in age from 7 to 13. He spends most of his free time with his children. He is a diploma RN from Baptist Memorial Health System in San Antonio and has dreams of returning to school at the Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University and completing his master's in aviation safety systems. I caught up with Jonathan in Virginia Beach, Virginia at the Virginia State Nurses Association annual meeting where he will be delivering a speech on his crash experience going from provider then to patient. Welcome, Jonathan, and thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Thanks. I appreciate that. I know that you do not talk about your air medical crash much, um, although uh, tomorrow you are going to be speaking with the uh, Virginia State Nurses Association uh, members about that experience. Um, But we appreciate you taking the time today, too, to talk about it. You wrote a paper after the crash that you provided uh, to me last year when I was assisting with the Vision Zero project. How hard was it to write that paper? Well, actually, the body of that paper was written while I was still in the hospital and only a couple days into the crash. I had been a fairly avid writer um, prior to the crash, and uh, it was um, quite cathartic for me to be able to put that down on paper. Mm-hmm. Did that help in the healing process? It certainly has uh, has helped in my healing process. Um, and then I have also spoken to others and suggested um, that they do the same. Um, it also, I think, provides a benefit to the people around you. Um, sometimes you can't express everything that's going on after such a, a huge event like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then help help you really uh, like your speech tomorrow um, to collect your notes to know what you were feeling at that time. I'm sure has helped. Oh, certainly. Well, we'll talk about the crash. Um, you know what you heard, what you felt, and what you did to survive. Well, um, I had been at Life of Act Two, which was in Fredericksburg, Virginia, for about eight months. Um, We had a new EC-135P2. It had all the bells and whistles that were common in the industry at that time. It was uh, had TAWs and was uh, ready for NVGs, um, of course, dual engine, um, and, uh, you know, quite a a terrific airframe. Um, The the placement of that base is just south of Washington, D.C. It's about 20-minute flight time into the center of D.C., which uh, people can imagine is one of the most restricted airspaces um, in the country, if not in the world. Uh, We had a neighboring program that had uh, asked us to go and pick up a uh, patient from a hospital in the northwest area. Um, We flew up, 
uh, picked up the patient. It was we left at about dusk, uh, January 10th of 2005. Uh, took the patient uh, into the hospital center there in the middle of the district, and um, walked back out to the aircraft where our pilot was already spun up um, and. Actually, I was supposed to be sitting in the back as we were flip-flopping um, seats. And uh, Nikki, my paramedic, had uh, for some reason decided um, that she was going to sit in the back and put me up front where I'd been um, for the previously unloaded leg. Mm-hmm. Um, loading up was uh, pretty quick um, since my seat belts were already arranged. Um, and uh, the aircraft by that time was quite familiar to me. We lifted off at 2306, um, the route structure in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, you have multiple choices, but they are very structured. We chose to go down a helicopter route that's traveled by a lot of aircraft in the area going to the south back towards home, um, which was in Stafford County. Um, we were at about 200 feet, which is uh, the maximum li- limit in that area, and went by Reagan National uh, Airport and approached a longtime construction project at the Wilson Bridge, um, which circles um, or is part of the beltway that circles Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, the construction project had um, a lot of obstacles um, in the area, which were cranes that raised up well above the prescribed altitude that we were allowed to fly at. Um, my job as a co-pilot, of course, is to be a resource to the pilot. And um, I called out aircraft that were coming into the airport, um, stated uh, cranes on both sides, and felt like we were um, able to fly in between cranes, Um, out of a well-lit area into a less-lit area that's rather unpopulated over the Potomac River. Um, I briefly looked down at the traffic that was passing uh, over the bridge, which was being constructed, um, looked back up to establish horizon again, and uh, don't recall much after I heard what I thought was a sound external to the aircraft. Mm -hmm. Um, I woke up uh, about 1,200 yards south of the Wilson Bridge after being ejected um, uh, as the front of the aircraft disintegrated as we impacted water. Um, Both uh, Nikki and Joe were uh, killed at that point, and um, I woke up submerged in the bottom of the Potomac, still strapped to my seat, um, and my helmet had been ripped off. Um, and it took me a little while to free myself from the seat, um, as I had multiple injuries. Uh, my The normal arm that I used to release, release myself from my seat um, was broken, and uh, trying to find uh, a reference point, either inside, you know, wherever I may be, um, I found to be difficult, um, overwhelming panic, um, feeling like I was suffocating, and uh, eventually heard the voices of my coworkers and the training that I had had inside my head. Um, quit panicking, sat back down on the bottom of the river, and started over with my left hand. 
um, finding a leg and then coming up to my seatbelt um, around to the front where uh, the release button was, twisting it and then coming up to the surface to try and establish you know, what reference points I had and exactly where I was and what in the world was happening to me at that point. Right. And how deep is the river at that? The river, it, since it's a construction area and barges come through, it's kind of uh, indulated where it has hills and valleys. Uh, where they found my seat um, is between 8 and 10 feet deep mm-hmm. um, at, at that point. And, and you say so you don't remember you remember looking down and then the next point where you remember is you're at the bottom of the river correct yeah. you know when when i woke up i had no idea that i was at work or that i had been in a helicopter or anything cuz we were traveling at cruise speed which yeah. uh is about 130 knots mm-hmm. had you taken in water um no, I I did not have the normal gas reflex when you hit um, cold water, and the the water temp that night was uh, thirty eight degrees. Oh boy, chilly. Yeah. Um, how big of a role did training play in your survival? You had mentioned some names, so I assume those are people that you. Uh, that helped you train? I mean, was was water egress training part of the overall training that you received? I did not receive water egress training um, until I volunteered to go afterwards. Um, I was supposed to go to uh, winter survival training um, about uh, six weeks later. Um, I, the only training that I'd had at that point was from my coworkers who were experienced flight crew pilots and the regular flight briefs where we discussed what would happen and some of the major things that you know were relayed over and over and over were to stop wait for all motion to uh, cease um, don't panic find a reference point stuff like that mm-hmm and you were right side up on the bottom? Uh, I was, uh, I mean, it was the, you know, late at night. It was, impact was around 23.15 at night. Mm-hmm. And best I could tell is that I was pretty much right side up and kind of leaning to to my left side. Yeah, yeah. So you got your reference points and you're up. Um, you know, your your injuries uh, were quite extensive, Um I guess tell tell us first about when did you even notice that you were injured? You talked about your arm, you know, getting out of your seatbelt, but some of your other injuries, because I'm sure your first instinct, obviously, is to get up above water, get air, um, and then talk about how hard it was to recover. Okay. Um, you know, initially when I, I was able to come to the surface, I treaded water and did a 360 just to see where I was. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized that there was debris and jet fuel where I was. Um, and in doing that 360, I saw the enclosed tail rotor um, sticking out of the water just a little bit. Um, I knew that that was the closest thing to me um, and went ahead and uh, started swimming towards it. Uh, my initial instinct, I swam competitively for a little while when I was younger, and uh, so I w- you know, tried threw my right arm over, which was really not functional at that time, and then 
you know, pulled my left arm over, the left arm made a splash and the right one didn't. Um, you know, being a trauma nurse, my the first thought that went through my head was, um, okay, my right arm's not working. Next question is, is it there? And if it's not there, um, I probably have an arterial bleed, so I probably need to swim faster. Um, went ahead and it took me a little while to get to the tail, even though it was only 40 yards away with my boots and a loaded flight suit and, uh, and even the cold water. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to kind of wiggle myself up onto the tail of the aircraft. At that point, I was facing north. Um, the, the bridge was kind of at my 10 o'clock position, um, about, uh, still 1200 yards away. Um, my injuries at that point, I knew that I had a broken sternum. I knew that I had a broken arm. Um, the broken sternum was because every time I breathed, um, initially I couldn't feel the pain. It was just that I could hear it popping back and forth. Um, being a trauma nurse with, uh, uh, knowledge at that point wound up being a little bit of a deficit because my first instinct was to try and find my stethoscope so I could see if I had a pneumothorax or other injuries in my chest. Um, meanwhile, trying to scream for help and and you know trying to figure out how to be heard or seen at that point. Um, it wasn't until um, later on that I found out that I had two broken ribs, a pulmonary contusion, substernal hematoma, um, a dislocated right shoulder, compound fracture of my right humerus. Um, I had uh, seven thoracic compression fractures, lost about two inches in height, and uh, sprained uh, just about everything uh, down in my lower extremities as well. Wow. What injury has proven the most difficult to overcome? You know, that that sometimes changes from day to day. Um, some of the physical injuries um, still nag. Um, I've learned how to adapt to uh, some of the things, in, uh, you know, especially with my right arm and some uh, nerve damage there. But certainly the the thing that has been the worst has been uh, learning exactly what survivor's guilt is and uh, the the ebb and flow of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, that must have been a very, very hard for you losing, you know, two of your uh, crewmates. Yes, that, that, uh, yeah, I mean, that even just started to set in uh, by the time, you know, within probably an hour and a half and realizing that, that they were not there anymore. Yeah. Tell us about Survivor's Guild. How did you get help to understand that? Um, you know, it, it took me a little while. Um, uh, at first, there was a, a mandatory EAP uh, mm-hmm. that they wanted me to go to. Survivor's Guild is half so excited that you are alive um, and half of asking a question of why me? Mm. What could I have done? What if I had done? And that continues um, at at times uh, to come along and um, jump up in my face, really uh, on the anniversary of uh, the crash each year. It's a kind of a difficult time. Um, and also really on Joe and Nikki's uh, birthdays and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, go back. Uh, you're in the water. How long were you in the water 
until uh, you were rescued? I was um, about knee-deep by the time I, I climbed up on the aircraft, um, and I had one foot on each side of the tail boom um, standing up on uh, the the stable, horizontal stabilizers on each side and leaning back towards the enclosed tail rotor. Um, I stayed there for about 45 minutes until um, two different EMS entities uh, came into play. One of them was Maryland State Trooper 2, uh, who, uh, a Dauphine helicopter who actually spotted the wreckage and then hovered over the wreckage and um, eventually put their spotlight on me and saw me. Mm-hmm. Um, Second was um, Alexandria Fire in Virginia had just received a uh, fire and rescue boat. Um, It was not stocked. They'd only had it for a short time. Um, They did not believe that an aircraft had gone down but heard it over the EMS radio and treated it essentially like a a training mission um, until they found the jet fuel in the water. Um, They came along and... uh, there were three people on board. They were only get able to come within about uh, 20 yards of me um, and tried to coax me down off the tail to swim over to the boat um, while one of them was putting on a dry suit. Um, her name was Tina Early. Um, and at that point, I was a bit hypothermic, um, getting a little bit confused. And when she jumped in the water, her dry suit inflated on the upper part and uh you know, I joke about it saying that she looked kind of like a Michelin man or an Oompa Loompa <laughs> at that point. Yeah. Um, she brought over a, a life ring, and I still had to go ahead and get back down into the water, um, grab onto the life ring, and they pulled me over to the boat um, and placed me on the back platform. Uh, at that point, they didn't have a backboard or a collar, um, and one of the firefighters went ahead and took off his coat and uh, – while he was holding me onto the back platform, uh, went ahead and, and put his coat over me. Um, and I still remember the warmth of his coat, um, although kind of brief as it went away, um, was the, the first sense of relief that someone was actually taking care of me at that point. Right. And when when did the helicopter first notice you? I, I think in the piece that you had um, provided me, you, you did have some signaling... Um, available. So you were able to signal up. Right. So about uh, two weeks before, I'd stopped by a sporting goods store and picked up a high-intensity LED light. Um, Mm. I went back to the package afterwards, and it said that it was waterproof and impact resistant, and um, obviously it proved to be right. Um, I had uh, had that in one of my uh, flight suit pockets where my left functional arm was able to reach in and get it. Um, I had turned it on and was pretty much shining it at everything um, in the blinking mode uh, that I thought you know people might be towards the bridge or towards the shorelines. Um, and it just so happens that a Maryland state police officer who happened to be flagged down on the bridge saw that out in the middle of the water. Um, I did not know that for quite some time. Um, and then I had also shined the, the blinking light when I saw the helicopter, um, but with their night sun reflecting off 
um, the shimmering water, it didn't stand out to them until finally I shined the light on myself while they were hovering above me. I see. Wow. When did you, is that then when you first realized that, you know, I, I have been found, I'm going to make it? Well, you know, there were a few things that went through. I didn't have communication with them. I was familiar with Maryland State Police um, in that I knew that some of their helicopters had hoists. Um, I, I think I had a moment of fantasy that I was going to see uh, somebody drop down and, you know, put something around me and pull me up into the aircraft and take me away. Um, but they they did a couple things. First, they hovered above me, um, which with the rotor wash of the Dauphine was making the tail kind of sway back and forth. Um, and my next wish was that they would kind of go away a little bit. Um, I knew that they had seen me when they backed off a little bit, but kept the spotlight on me. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just, uh, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I, uh, has it been difficult for you to tell this story? Um, you know, I don't really know why. Um, but it was very early on that I knew that um, that that I wanted to be able to talk about it. Um, yeah. I'd seen an awful lot of trauma victims, and there was something about it that when people talked about the trauma, it seemed to make life a little bit better. Um, I also knew that I had a huge desire for this to never happen to anybody else either. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You know, initially, I think it was difficult to talk about it. Um, I don't think that I relive it every time that I talk about it now. Um, it's a memory, but it's not um, as painful, you know, as as time has gone by. When did you actually give the first talk? I gave the first talk um, at Christiana Care, um, a flight program up in uh, Delaware, just next to the Maryland border when the regional vice president um, was in my hospital room, he had uh, he'd asked, is there anything that I can, you know, really do for you? And I said, I, you know, kind of had explained to him that I wanted to go and speak to other flight groups and, and uh, reinforce the importance of, of so many of the little things um, that you do and how important they were. And I think it was within 30 days that he came and picked me up in his car and drove me up. And I remember giving probably the worst PowerPoint presentation of my entire <laughs> life. <laughs> um, and I still have it um, to about, it, there must have been 40 people in this little bitty room. Um, and there were, you know, flight crew, pilots, mechanics, hospital workers. And I went through and um, it felt almost like I was talking really to myself um, with them listening, doing it the first time. Yeah. I'm sure you had a tremendous reaction to that. I mean, very supportive. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it was a very quiet room. So you've improved your PowerPoint slides now, so for tomorrow you'll be good, I take it. <laughs> yes, I, I uh, have certainly made quite a few PowerPoints uh, since then, and have mastered uh, mostly the the art of speaking to the crowd instead of being worried about what um, you know yep. what I'm doing inside. 
How many times have you uh, given a speech? I know you're doing a lot on Vision Zero, too, and we'll talk about that later, but on on the crash itself, how many times have you? Um, I don't keep uh, a very good log um, uh, of that, but I can say that I have uh, spoken at programs coast-to-coast well over 100 times um, at... uh, you know, AMTC in 2005 was the first big one, and then I'm routinely invited to come and speak at safety days um, at programs um, to to really reach down to the crew member who is actually doing the job. Right. When people listen to your talk, what are some of the questions when people come up afterwards? Um, what's been kind of the big impact for people that you find? You know, common. Uh, you know, there, there, there's a lot of things. Um, I think that any time that a human being goes and gets into a routine and does a job for a while, um, the normal human response is to um, kind of ebb and flow out of uh, complacency. Um, and it may be a small amount of complacency. Mm-hmm. Some people get into a bigger rut of that. Um, I think that it winds up kind of defibrillating uh, a program at times that when someone can stand in front of you, a human being, and say, I've been there and I've done that, and these are the things that contributed to my being able to survive such a dramatic event, um, I, I think people go and think about things, about putting on their seatbelt correctly, about fitting their helmet correctly, uh, wearing their visor down no matter when they're flying, um, what they're wearing in you know, cold weather or warm weather. Yes. All those things wind up coming together, and in that moment that if something else goes wrong, have you prepared for that moment in that flight and giving yourself, you know, the chance, stacked all the cards that you can in your favor, and hopefully you're going to, you know, wind up contributing to your own survival. So it's it's really knocking people out of their complacency. I mean, really, it's a, I'm sure it hits them head on that, you know, hey, this could happen. I need to be prepared. I need to be paying attention to safety. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Jonathan, what about um, when you've given the talk, and I know uh, you're involved in the new Survivors Network for Air and Surface Medical Transport with your uh, fellow survivors, uh, Megan Hamilton, Teresa Pearson, Krista Hagen, um, and that'll be a subject of a another podcast because I'd like to have you all on there to really talk about the, the work that you're doing. But when you when you've given your talk to groups that have had survivors or other survivors have heard your talk, what do they tell you? You know, that's a very interesting question. I think it was at least about six months um, before I ever met another survivor. Um, You know, that first six months, I felt like a, um, a, I don't know, a freak. Um, I had really never heard of anybody who survived any kind of a significant crash, um, and it was very lonely. Um, I had been contacted by some other people who had been in 
some large airliner crashes, and they had provided me with a little bit of assistance. Um, but then I made contact with a gentleman uh, by the name of Joe Paletta, who was another sole survivor. Um, and I remember the first day that we got on the phone, and you know, I told him my story, and which he was, of course, familiar with at that point. And he told me his story, and then we started kind of trading some of those survivor questions that at that point, um, I don't know that I'd been able to go and ask somebody about how they felt inside or how other people treated them or, you know, did he ever climb back in the aircraft? How did that feel? Um, you know, what were his injuries? How did he overcome those? And, and dealing with a lot of those emotional things that go on inside your head, even though your body has, has progressed in healing. Mm-hmm. And hence, really, why the Survivors Network is so important to reach out. I think the the thing that I was astounded is that, uh, you know, in speaking with Megan, Teresa, and Krista in San Jose at the last uh, Air Medical Transport Conference, the number of survivors that are out there. Yeah, there's a, a, a pretty large spectrum. Um, we eventually the four of us kind of got together and each of the four of us may know one or two other people who have been through um, a crash and so at AMTC 2009 um, we we kind of sat down and tried to define what a survivor is and we found that to even be rather nebulous um, so just for a st statistical reason um, I'm just going to talk about the numbers that if you go into the NTSB uh, website and look up, um, you know, helicopters and even fixed wing with a medical transport profile, um, we were able to uh, look at that along with uh, a generous number of other studies um, that have been done over the last 10 years. And the numbers are somewhere around 400 of us. Um, and if you wind up in an aircraft uh, accident that winds up with an NTSB number, you can either have serious, uh, minor, or no injuries at all. Um, what we did find that, that I was in the only crash that had a fatality of the four of us, but that really didn't make a whole lot of difference as to the aftermath, right. what it did to you mentally, and how it changed your practice um, and those people who were around you. Mm -hmm. Well, I I want to talk to to all of you again and really get into this because you guys are doing some great work. And just saw that you put up a Facebook page now too, along with the website. But let's go back um, uh, to the uh, to your crash. Um, you know, NTSB came out with their report on what the cause of the crash was. Um, I know you have some disagreements about that. Tell us about what the NTSB said and, and what you feel happened. Well, early on, um, the the uh, uh, even when I was in the hospital, they were looking at four different possibilities. Um, one of them was that we came in contact with some uh, um, obstruction that that had to do with the uh, with the new uh, building of the bridge. The second was wake turbulence because it is an airspace where some other aircraft were coming in and out of Reagan National Airport. Mm -hmm. Number three was a bird strike. 
And of course, the familiar one, number four, is controlled flight into, ter- into terrain. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, NTSB, um, in their initial uh, findings, felt that it was uh, um, having to do with controlled flight into terrain. And then their final report that came out um, additionally uh, supported, uh, from their perspective, some of those uh, findings as well. Um, I I know that uh, when I was being uh, initially rescued and people were asking me, you know, what did you see? What did you hear? What did you feel? What do you remember? Um, It was always a consistent answer that I heard and or and or felt at that point something um, external to the aircraft was my impression at that point. And, And that being the crane? Um, you know, that's an argument that uh, that I still feel like, um, you know, for the past five years it has been a valid question. Right. Okay. Well, besides all this physical and mental toll that uh, that you've uh, have been through, um, you also say that you spent most of your life savings, you know, during this recovery. Was this because of medical bills, not being able to work, or or other expenses? Yeah, that that is um, also a, a common theme when you talk to other survivors, and and we'll we'll talk more in depth about that when the the four survivors are together. Um, but you know, we're covered by generally workers' comp, and. Um, There are things over and above um, workers' comp, babysitters, you know, if you have children. um, Most of us don't just work 40 hours a week, so the ability to work that second job or work Mm -hmm. any overtime, um, and that is pretty common, I think, in America, um, really impacts you. Um, I've also spent um, a good bit of time and felt it necessary to um, go out and raise, you know, other flight crews' awareness, and have chosen not to go and and charge for that. Um, and I feel like that I am kind of honoring my crew's memory um, when I go out and try to affect positive change. Mm-hmm. Speaking of of work, when then when did you then get back to? Uh... Uh, working and was it? I, I know you're a flight nurse now, but was it right back into flight nursing, or did you do other uh, positions first? Well, I, I, when I about six months um, after the crash, maybe a little bit less than that, um, I went into my program director's office and told him that I was going absolutely stir crazy. Um, I was normally a, a quite a busy person, but um, I was unable to go and, and lift much of anything. Um, I'd just been able to start driving again. And I asked, asked him for something to be able to do um, for the program. And I remember he pulled this cardboard box out of a closet and uh, said that he wanted me to get the program CAMES accredited. And I don't know at that point, I know that I'd heard about CAMES, but I really didn't know what the process was. So between him helping me, self-educating, and going through all of the things that they had done up to that point, 
um, we were able to, uh, at AMTC 2005, or maybe it was spring of 2006 it was, um, we received the first CAMES accreditation for both bases. Um, It was directly after that that I returned into a full clinical and flight orientation that I'd requested um, to, because I knew that I did want to go back into a full provide a role back on the on the aircraft i did not know that about you that's uh I, i've always i have told people over the years that you know doing or coordinating the cames effort is one of the best ways uh to learn about a program because it really goes into everything oh i agree yeah. um and, and you also wind up being able to meet some really incredible people while you're going through the process right. and that's how i learned so much about not only the program, the history of the program that maybe I hadn't known, as well as the community around you and the larger, you know, community and the entire nation. So, so when was that, Jonathan, that you went back to the program? How how long after the crash? Um, it was uh, the spring of 2006 that I was able to start doing some clinical duties um, after our came survey. I meant when you went back for the CAMES piece, how how long after the um, crash? It was, was it? around July. July, okay. Well, let's talk about Vision Zero. Uh, you took over as chair of that initiative in the spring of 2009. Um, tell us about what you've done to re-energize this important project. Sure. Well, um, First Vision Zero was created in 2005. I was aware of it um, shortly after the the crash itself. And I had not heard a whole lot about what was going on with Vision Zero early in 2009. And I simply walked into the Ames office. Um, I'm fortunate enough to live less than an hour's drive from there and sat down with some of the office staff and just asked the simple question as to what was going on. Um, they were kind enough to look at me and say, well, what do you think <laughs> you know, should be going on with Vision Zero? Um, that turned into um, a little bit of studying on my part um, and putting together some of the things that I had seen as common themes at programs on their safety days. and. Uh, was able to kind of uh, brainstorming with uh, some of the leadership uh, there at the office and around the community came up with um, the the fact that Vision Zero had done a terrific job at being visible at uh, some of the larger conferences. Um, I think that administration across the community um, kind of in the boardroom type areas had a better concept of what Vision Zero was Um, great brand recognition with the Vision Zero logo, but when you went down to the crew level, they may have heard about it, they may have seen a sticker, they may have seen the emblem, but they really didn't know how to embrace that in their daily lives. Um, So I uh, went, and since we all love acronyms, we broke Vision Zero down into uh, an acronym that defined Uh, further what some of the values um, were that were still supported by many of the white papers 
um, and even looking at the FAA's uh, AMRAM circular that they'd put out, and uh, and then further boiled it down to three areas, and that's education, awareness, and personal vigilance. Mm-hmm. And you've also reached out to the air medical uh, community through uh, a Facebook page now. You have a Twitter feed and um, the new website. I mean, it's uh, a lot more information on there. Uh, that's correct. Um, the the website, which is visionzero.aims.org, um, you know, the electronic media had um, has really become a great source of information and Really, uh, you know, website is uh, one has some value to a certain uh, number of people, and there are things that you can do with a website. The primary things with the website um, are the ability to describe what Vision Zero is. Um, also, inside of that, there is the Vision Zero toolbox, which came from an idea that we did not have a central repository um, for really terrific um, initiatives, PowerPoints, videos that many programs across the nation were doing but really didn't have an avenue to share those freely with other programs. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of think of it as a, a, a giant library that's online Um, And then we tried to set some limits that, number one, especially in the current economy, it needed to be freely shared. It wasn't a place to go and purchase things. Um, And, you know, I had heard so many times that safety is not proprietary, and this is obviously an area of safety. Um, And so we've been working really hard um, to go ahead and put in the infrastructure so that there's good filters with industry leaders, pilots, administrators, nurses, paramedics, mechanics, etc., that go and look at stuff that's coming into the toolbox so it really does meet uh, the typical industry standards. Yeah, that's fantastic. And so that's going to keep expanding as you uh, move forward. Correct. And the the nice thing is, is that individuals from programs who have the authority to go ahead and share that information back out to the community um, will be encouraged to go ahead and kind of drop their toolbox tools in. Um, Another really great relationship that we've developed, I know that we've mentioned CAMES, but the CAMES site surveyors who are going around the country will soon be um, educated about simply at the end of going and looking at a program, um, whether it be the first time or a repeat visit, that they will then go and identify things that maybe the community really could benefit from and then the, just highlight those to the program so that they can the program themselves can submit the, those if they want to. Yeah, that's great. It's the, part of their best pra- practices. Yeah. Um, the uh, uh, and that's where I think a website is good because you can put that type of stuff on there. You know, it tends to be a little bit more static. Um, tell us how you're using Facebook and Twitter or some of the new media tools. Well, Facebook and Twitter are certainly those things that, uh, you know, I I think that uh, an awful lot of people 
uh, utilize Facebook and communicate with their friends and then have also found that even large corporations, um, large nonprofit groups have found the benefit of communicating back and forth with, you know, on Facebook. It's something that can be updated on a minute-to-minute basis by mm-hmm. an average user. And um, it, it's a, certainly still a very professional site, but it is a little less formal um, and also allows for uh, for us to communicate with some of the other people who are in not only the rotor wing area of the medical transport industry, but fixed wing and the ground transport right. or CCT, et cetera. And plus you can, through Twitter or posts right on Facebook, those folks that are, you know, your fans on the page or are following you on Twitter get that instant information. Correct. And it also becomes a common theme that's easily recognized. And so it is facebook.com slash vision zero and twitter.com slash vision zero. And they really do communicate back and forth. Right. Exactly. Um, I know you want to expand vision zero and you from talking to you many times, you're a visionary yourself. What, what do you see as the future for vision zero? as you move move through now into 2010 and beyond? I think that there's um, several different ways. One is is that, um, you know, I I think that Vision Zero being a non-political place um, to be able to bring people together because the the best place for us to cooperate, no matter what your views are, um, is in the area of safety. And that may be at your neighboring program, which may be only a few miles away, or programs that are all within a state under different models, under different operators. I do feel that Vision Zero um, could be that umbrella that brings those folks together, no matter what model you're operating under, no Mm -hmm. matter what airframe that you're operating under. I think it reaches not only um, up into the administration, but now it gives also the people who are actually climbing in and putting on a helmet um, and, and going out and helping the public as an essential part of the EMS program within a state or a region, a place for safety to be from the top down and from the bottom up. Right. Um, I, I think that number two, in order for that to happen also, that there needs to be um, someone who continues to champion that Um, And and I certainly hope that I'll be able to do this um, for some time, but I also realize at some point, you know, new blood and new ideas will come into that um, as well. Well, I don't I don't think you're anywhere near that because uh, (laughs) you've had some uh, some great ones and you've certainly uh, re-energized this initiative. And thank you on behalf of the air medical community for that. Through everything. Oh, well, through everything you've learned, what what do you see as really the keys to safety and survivor, survivability for the average flight crew member and really and just our community in general? Well, you know, in, in both being in the Washington, D.C. area, associating with AIMS, um, with all of the other organizations uh, that are Uh, that interact with AIMS, traveling around the country, and especially being able to interact 
with uh, Dr. Ira Bloom and, and the OSI group, I, I keep coming away feeling that I've heard so many times that there is no silver bullet. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I agree with that. There is no one thing that we can do. But I also believe that the individual flight crew member, no matter what laws, no matter how good legislation, whether it come from Congress or the FAA or anybody else, that you cannot legislate a person's personal vigilance. What's more is airframes, technology, anything that you give to the employee If they don't utilize that personal vigilance, then it pretty much wipes out the rules, regulations, and technology that you've gone and given them. That being said, we, the people who are doing the job, are the closest thing to a silver bullet. Mm. So it's not all the technology, it's that, that personal attention to safety. Every day, every minute, every second. Correct. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, I know we could uh, talk for hours because I, I always enjoy um, having a conversation with you. But uh, is there anything uh, else that you'd like to tell our listeners um, about, uh, uh, you know, either the crash, the, the t- speeches that you've given, or Vision Zero? Um, I think that we've covered uh, most of it. I certainly would hope that they would uh, go and log on to the website and uh, watch us as we continue to grow with the Survivor Network. Um, You will be going uh, to be able to – actually, we're going to be mailing out a pamphlet and uh, some more information on Vision Zero to every single program in the United States. It will be coming from Ames and – I continue to look forward to interacting with everybody in the community. When when's that coming out? Uh, we sh- well, that we keep on saying that. Well, <laughs> our you goal was the for the, <laughs> our goal was by the end of 2009. Hopefully, here in January 2010, we'll be able to actually okay. be looking stamps and putting those on. Yeah, great. Well, that's 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 wonderful. The resource and uh, I, I put up all all the uh, links and everything on the show notes, so we'll have. Uh, Stuff that for people listening to the podcast, they can uh, get the website and you can go to that. Well, thanks again for being on the podcast. I know with scheduling and stuff and your uh, travel uh, to Virginia Beach, uh, we had to uh, work it around yeah, uh, time schedules. But uh, the very best of luck with your work on Vision Zero and uh, with your speech tomorrow. All right. Thank you so much, Ed. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com and also on iTunes under Air Medical Today. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the site. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. Stan's work can be found at roomtuneenterprise.com. 
Please continue to keep the citizens of Haiti in your thoughts and prayers. Until the next episode, take care and fly safe.